Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Ladies and gentlemen, D.A. Pennebaker. So is it true that they actually had to send out police squads to the New York Film Festival to quiet the mobs, the angry mobs? Well, because they, 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 they put it in the library. I don't know why. And so there was a huge long line waiting to get in the library. Uh-huh. So uh, Mary Rogers called me up and said, God, come down here. It's, it's, it's crazy. They're having a riot. And so we went down, and it was kind of funny. But it's always had a strange life, kind of. It's lived in the streets because the original rights for it were very complex. They were done with a, uh, I think, with some sort of uh, ceremonial dispatch with a, a, a union that was about to go out of business. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in, in, <laughs> later, we had to go through. I mean, it took us 10 years to get everybody to sign off on it. It was really hard. Is that why uh, you couldn't get a theatrical release for the film? I never tried. It's only mm-hmm. an hour long. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the music rights really... Well, it didn't seem to me it was a theatrical film. But, you know... Boy, when I see it now, well, when I see what we did with the, with the HBO film mm-hmm, with mm-hmm. Sheila, I mean, she is such a, she, Elaine is such an amazing personage. And when I see, I, I was watching it and remembering the, the first performance and then subsequent performances and finally the one they all loved, right, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. seems to be totally dead. I mean, when I watch it now, I can't think that that's the one because in the beginning... She's really got herself. It's about herself. She's, it's like she's taking and opening up her front and just showing you everything that's there, good, bad, everything. And little by little, she removes herself, each take, and it gets kind of more sort of insipid. And as he says, you know, it was just flaccid. The idea that that first take being flaccid struck me as so amazing. I remember the camera kind of shakes because I couldn't believe Tom said that. But for them, for a record, that's the reality that they all live with day and night. And, and it just suddenly hit me. It must be really hard to be an actor going through that kind of gradation. Well, that's actually an interesting question. I mean, it's, it strikes me that there must be at least two of you in the room. There's Pennebaker, the filmmaker, who's having to make um, a lot of quick decisions on where to point the camera, are the lights going yeah. out, are they going to last that long? But there's also Pennebaker, who's an audience observer and I'm just wondering how you were responding as an, an audience member as an observer to this whole experience to what the what the actors were going through well I mean I have the sense when I'm filming that I'm getting inside the camera and uh, so somewhere deep in that camera is a person just watching uh, theater you know mm-hmm, and it mm-hmm. is theater for mm-hmm. me and trying to kind of figure out, I mean, my feet take me where I should be. I don't even think about that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, As long as I don't run into a microphone, that works. What it's about, what I should be somehow holding and making sure that whatever I do, the choreography of it, which is kind of unconscious, Mm -hmm. uh, be fitting, be right, Mm -hmm. that I'm not way back for a wide shot when she's saying everybody dies, you Mm -hmm. know. You, you, You don't have to think it about it so much, but you have to be sure. It's like in football, you know, when somebody hits, throws the ball at you, you 
you've learned a whole lot of things you have to do, mm -hmm. so you do mm -hmm. And you don't think about them individually, but you put yourself on point to do them. And every once in a while, I mean, I knew all these people pretty well. Hal Prince was a very good friend. I didn't know Steve really before, but after he heard my peculiar mix of another hundred people, I thought he was, you know, seeing how, how crazy he is about mm. every note, I thought, Jesus, he's going to die. He's going to just kill me. And he loved it. I was so surprised. That, that ever since then, I've had a very kind of intriguing view of, of, of Steve because actually it turns out he was hanging around with Oscar Hammerstein and he was sort of uh, part of a group that used to come up to New Haven when Aki would put on a show when he backed a lot of shows. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he did the one where the later, uh, uh, what was it called? Mary Mary, I think. Uh, it was so, uh, Marilyn Monroe had her dress blowing up around her ears. Seven year age. But, but, the, but the play, which came a few years before that, mm -hmm. came up to New Haven. Mm -hmm. And he was hanging out. But I couldn't remember him because I was also hanging out because by some peculiar chance of fate, which I have no recollection of now, there was a woman named Sean Lynch, a girl named Sean Lynch, and I was Sean Lynch's date. They needed to have a date for us. So somehow I was in, in Yale. I was a junior or something at Yale. So I would be invited to the dinners, which were kind of wonderful because pockmocked Aki would sit at the head of the table and just dominate the table, everybody. And it was so full of people all with different takes on the play or whatever. And I was suddenly swept into this theater village, so to speak. And I remember thinking, you know, this is something I'll never uh, forget, but I'll never understand. Mm -hmm. And I, I knew that, that because later uh, he, somebody, I read somewhere somebody, that uh, Steve had been there, but I couldn't remember. It turned out Steve was actually younger than I was. And I can remember this kid at the corner of the table, and it turned out that was Steve. We had, we had this out the other night, and both of us were laughing because he had no idea that I was actually older than him. He thought I was younger. So it was kind of interesting that our lives had crossed really long, long ago. And then not, not until company did I really set out to film something he did, which, you know, Bob Crichton, who was a writer, married to Judy Crichton, and I, they were very good friends, and Crichton was a terrific writer. And he and I got tickets to see the show the night before. They always do it the Sunday night, I think, at the end of the week, the end of the first week when the show goes on. And so we got tickets to see the show. And Crichton and I were watching the show, and afterwards we both said, we have no idea what this show is about. No idea in the world. It's really over our heads. And so I kind of didn't know what to do because I had to go in the next night and make a film about the, this, this thing. And I thought about it. And I thought, well, the music is just fantastic. And, of course, Elaine Stritch is something else. All I have to do is to keep very close-up lens on all of these people because they're marvelous and get the music, make the music work. And so I dreamt up this little theater piece of another hundred people you know, and, and that, that there was this show going on. And I figured that, that it, I mean, I didn't think I was actually going to reenact the play, but it would serve to, to hold it together. And it was only supposed to be an hour long. And they had sold it, Danny had sold it to, uh, to American Airlines, which when they heard it and Barcelona was there, bailed. They said, this is going to have advertising in it. It's a regular commercial piece. So you're going to have three chunks 
and it'll be an ad or commercial between each chunk. So I thought, well, okay. I mean, I'd never done anything like this before, but I thought I'll just make it in uh, like a triptych. So there's three sections. You can't see them now because we pulled them together. And then they had a little tease at the beginning, and there'd be commercials in between there. And they then syndicated it, sent it out to all these stations in some way. I, I think they made prints then. I don't think they had any way of sending it, this tape. Uh, but I don't remember now how they did it. But when they finished the show and it went out, there was a real panic because they couldn't sell it and they didn't know what to do. But American Airlines' objections to the song were... Barcelona. Barcelona were not because of the promiscuity, the implied promiscuity, but the idea that the stewardess was not going to show up for work. Something like that. I mean, I don't know. I never had any talk. I sort of avoided American Airlines <laughs> to find out because I, I didn't want the thing to not go on the air because oh. after we'd all done all that work. I mean, it barely paid for itself, you know. Well, this is the definitive recording. It's the be-all and end-all, as Susan Browning right. says. A lot is at stake. What were the ground rules for you and your two cameramen? Uh, Tom Shepard strikes me as a, well, no as a scary guy. Out we go. Right. Uh-huh. Uh, beyond that, Mary Rogers was there, and I knew her. She was terrific because, mm-hmm. you know, she was a music writer herself. And uh, I knew a couple of the other people that were... I knew actually quite a number of the people involved on mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. But I had never made a film with any of them. I didn't know everybody was standing back to see... What would happen? <laughs> and I, I really was, uh, I didn't take it very seriously, I think. I just said, well, we'll go in there and film as long as, try not to hit a mic. You know, At what point it. did you know that you had a movie? Elaine. Mm-hmm. At the end of that first take of Elaine, I'll tell you, my hair was standing on end. Mm-hmm. And it was like we later did a, a film, Beckett wrote a film for us called Rockabye. And in it, he has an old lady in a rocking chair, rocking herself, I guess, to death. wasn't clear. Billy Whitelaw. Yeah, Billy was in. We did a film of that. Mm-hmm. And I remember, by way of Dan LeBay, who was the producer mm-hmm. uh, from Beckett, when she does this thing at the end, uh, which is kind of a soliloquy of sorts, but in it, it's, it's not clear that she is dying as dead at the end. There were three takes. We did a... As a performance, which was difficult because the lighting was very dark. And when I did it, I kind of realized that I was doing the same thing with Billy mm-hmm. that I did with Elaine. With three times I would, and, and then I can see, I can sort of understand what was driving me when I watched the thing now. But I was closing in and closing in and closing in to get some sign from her face. Because, you know, she, she plays the part of an old drunk, which maybe she was, although I never thought of her as that. But she just, she was playing a role that was really indigenous to her real self. And that was incredible. Uh, in a thing that was theatrically bound, that was completely contained within this show that Steve had written, that you'd see somebody get... It was like she'd gotten up on stage and suddenly done a, 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 a bare-assed fan dance or something. You know, it, was, it was of her own contriving, mm-hmm. and I thought that was so amazing. I couldn't get over that, that, that this was a real... That I didn't even know. I, mean, I knew her. I, I went to parties, and she would be there, and we would talk about whatever was going And she never took a cab. She always walked, so she got out and walked home. And that was such an amazing moment for me that I thought... 
I'll do that for the Beckett. And it really worked mm-hmm. for, the, for the Beckett thing. And I, I thought there's some sort of thing, piece of theater there that I should remember, but I can't remember quite what it is now. There are times when the camera appears to be so close, like when Dean Jones does being alive. I mean, you, you, feel, like you're, you feel like you're going to do a tonsillectomy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But My where, mother-in-law objected to that strenuously. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> How, but where are you standing at that point? Well, about six feet away, mm-hmm. seven feet away. Because it really has an effect of almost like Bergman scenes from a marriage where the camera feels so tight yeah. that you want to back away as an audience I, I notice that a lot. We do very few wide scenes, and when they're wide, they're filled with a lot of people. For me, the process of watching somebody in whom you're interested in, your interest is because you think they may know something, mm-hmm. even if it's only the words to a song, that the process is to close. You come in closer and closer, and I think that that... Well, I'm, I'm not, I don't know a lot about what I'm now about to talk about, but it's just a sense that I've always had, which is that there's a genetic sense that you need to memorize the faces of the people with whom you must live, particularly the people you love, mm-hmm. and that that memorization is really what love is about, somehow, the memory of that face, and you do it by watching very closely. Well, on these cameras, which I have to tell you were all handmade, so they were very... They weren't exactly in perfect shape all the time. I wasn't sure they'd get, they'd get us through this kind of thing or not. But the camera has a zoom lens on it, which is to say you can go rack it through so that you can be ten times closer uh, when you end up as when you start, the wide angle. And uh, I've always found that people that I'm filming, and they may not even know me. They may not remember me the next day, you know, because I'm hidden behind the camera. But I find that by zooming in and somehow closing in on a face and memorize, through the lens, you just you memorize it in a way that you don't normally sitting at a table or watching them on a bus. It kind of gives me a sense of passion, not sexually, but emotionally for that person. And it, it, it has different effects, like with Bowie, who was so incredible, he's boy-girl. You know, and, mm-hmm. and looking at him, you, you, you suddenly think, gee, I could have an affair with that guy if you mm-hmm. wanted to. You know, it, mm-hmm. it, it, it's, it's such an amazing, overwhelming thing that happens. And it has to do with that closing in on the face. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a, a thing that I tend to do where I'm interested in the person. How much did you actually shoot of this recording session? Did you shoot every minute of the recording session? Well, there were session? three of us shooting maybe a half of it. Mm-hmm. We would shoot... They do two or three takes. Sometimes they only took one take of a song, like Barcelona. I think they only took one take, maybe two. So I didn't have much to work with. Uh, but in general, for the 10 hours we were there, or whatever number, you mm-hmm. could figure, we shot maybe 30,000 feet. So you rejiggered the outtakes for um, Don't Look Back. Do you think you have enough outtakes on this to do a part two? The outtakes on this disappeared. Hmm. The, there was a, an operation that was distributing it, took care of the outtakes, that is, they put them into bondage or someplace, and they were never seen again. So all we have is this. Mm-hmm. Just like I was supposed to do another... Th- this was the end of the, the theater recording session. I don't think they did another one for years. Were there any plans? Uh, there were, this was supposed yes, to be I was be supposed series. to do a lot. Of, Danny had said, do this one cheap, and then, you've got you'll be a millionaire because we'll do them forever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, of course, he, he then got a job offer at, at MGM. He ran MGM for about five years. 
And that was the last I saw him, except socially I went out there once and, and visited him. But that was the end. It never happened. But I kind of, kind of I didn't really want to do any more. You've danced through your career between music documentaries and political documentaries. Is there any hat between the two of those that you're more comfortable with wearing or that you prefer to well, wear? Or do p- they complement the each other? Pity the poor filmmaker, you know. You don't have much choice yeah. unless you're married to a famous actress mm-hmm. or you happen to be a screenwriter. There aren't many things you have access to. You have access to, to politicians who are uncertain about their futures, uh, sometimes dancers, but nobody ever wants to run a dance film, so it doesn't do you any good. And music... But the problem with the music between you and the musician is an agent. And that puts... I mean, the, the, the film with Dylan was a fluke. Mm-hmm. If it hadn't been Albert and Dylan, it, it could never have been made. And that goes for a lot. So I look on most of my films as sort of accidents. Monterey, the guy that called me up and asked me to make it. I can't remember his name now. He did Five Easy Pieces. What was the name of the director? Bob Rafelson, Rafelson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He called up. He said, would you like to do a film about a concert in California? And I had just seen Bruce Brown's film, mm-hmm. uh, Endless Summer. Mm-hmm. And the thing I loved about it, I thought I was going to go see a film and kind of learn how to surf, because I was sort of interested in surfing. And, of course, it isn't about surfing at all. It's about California. I mean, everybody falls right into the Beach Boy, uh, you know, tone of voice, and that's it. And it's great. I loved that. So, of course, I said, yes, yes, I'll go right now. And I never saw him again. Actually, uh, Lou Adler and, uh, and John Phillips turned out to be the people who put it together. I don't know how Bob... Uh, I met him years later, and he couldn't remember either, but he disappeared. But the idea of doing a film in California about music just knocked me out because everybody coming out of high school, that's the first place they wanted to go. You know, the chemistry was drawing them out there. And I thought, God, that's, where, that's the center. And you always try to go to the center of something if you're going to make a, a film with any kind of broad interest. I mean, you know, it's, it's hard. It, you're trying to make theater in an area where nobody wants theater very much. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. the documentary film was not looked on as a, as a highly evolved thing. So it was, you did it out of some sort of fantasy. I mean, the, I would say the first 10 years of my career were all fantasy. And then luckily, somebody wanted to see the films there, but in the beginning, we couldn't even get people to, to look at them, much less buy them. You went into Drew Associates in yes. the late 50s? Yes, um, Time and, Life. Uh, was there a, a manifesto there, like dogma? Well, it was, it was complicated because Drew, and I think Ricky to some extent, Ricky Leacock, who was my partner, felt that they were in journalism. And somehow journalism conferred a kind of higher level of wisdom on whatever we did, whatever mistakes we made, were somehow okay if it was journalism. I never saw it as journalism for a minute. I didn't want to make journalism. I wanted to make uh, plays, you know. And Al was kind of the same way. Al wanted, well, Al was interested in psychology. And I'm not sure what he saw. But he, he liked the idea of, of people, talking to people all over the world, getting on a train and just spending the rest of his life talking to people on it. But I wanted to make, you know, I wanted to, to be uh, like... Uh, George Bernard Shaw, mm-hmm. you know, I yeah. wanted these to be real plays. Mm-hmm. And that was really hard at life. And when I saw that, even when we got The Crisis, which could have been released as a theatrical film because it was such an amazing 
display of what the inside of the government's like, you know, under pressure, under mm -hmm. crisis. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't life's motivation, you know. They were, and Yankee No was sort of the same problem. So I realized it was never going to. I was never going to get a chance to, to do that there, and mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and I bailed out of there. And then uh, Ricky and I formed a company, and we, the first film we did, we did a film about the the Prime Minister of, of, of Canada, which was kind of interesting. I like, but so, somebody else edited it, and I could see that that was a mistake. Mm -hmm. We couldn't let anybody else edit our films. We did a lot of shorts. Anything we'd shoot in a day, we could, the film was very cheap. Uh, we got a place, a lab that uh, processed it very cheap. So we could make a 15-minute film, and it didn't cost us much. We had no idea what to do with them, but we mm -hmm. made a number of them. And then Albert Grossman came and said, would you like to make a film with my client, Bob Dylan? And I had only heard of Bob Dylan through, life had done a little very short kind of thing on him saying that he wasn't a very good folk singer. And that interested me a little bit because anybody who, who wasn't a very good folk singer for time life had to be kind of worth listening to. I mean, I had to think, <laughs> think of what was there. And so uh, I said yes and went. And that's what he started us, you know, full scale. Even though then, when I finished that film, this is probably more than you want to know about my life. You, if anybody wants to see <laughs> go, go to the bathroom, please. You wouldn't offend me. <laughs> but uh, when I finished that film, it was really ratty looking. And mm -hmm. I was the first to admit it. But it was a ratty look, a film about somebody that a lot of people were interested in. And I knew when I took it up and showed it in, in, in places, I'd show it to schools or sort of city groups somewhere in Wisconsin. People were just crazed by it. You know, they loved it. But the theater distributors had no idea about that. They looked at what they call production value. And, and that film would probably never have been distributed except for a, a distribution company called Art Theater Guild. Oh, I'd never heard of them. And they distributed porn films all over the West. That was their business. And the guy that ran this, it was a wonderful guy. I really got to like him a lot. I think his wife wanted to join the local country club. And this was an impediment somehow. And he wanted to get out of this business in some way. So somebody said, have him come up and look at your film. So he came in and looked at Don't Look Back. And at the end, he jumped up and he said, it's just what I've been looking for. It looks like a porn film, but it's not. <laughs> so he said, I'll give you a theater. And little did I know, he was giving us this theater in San Francisco that was the rattiest looking place you have ever seen. It was just unbelievable. Uh, later when I saw it, I couldn't believe that that's where he'd opened the film. But we opened it and there were lines around the block, which any filmmaker, that, that doesn't matter what the theater looks like. It played out there, I think, for almost a year before we opened it in New York. But had that not happened, I don't, nobody, and, and then people started writing nice things about it and pretty soon we were getting you know, reports from various parts of the globe uh, that, that was everybody wanted to know about Dylan, so that was mm -hmm. that saved saved us. And then Monterey sort of came after that. Monterey has, for my money, one of the most electrifying musical sequences in any movie, and I'm referring to the last sequence with Ravi Shankar, yeah. which goes on for really almost Along. a half hour. I know. And one of the things that's so exciting about that sequence is that at least for ten minutes we don't even see the performer. Yeah. You're, you're kind of roaming around the audience and, and can get a sense of how the mu music is building through how the audience is reacting to that. And I, I know. thought that was quite well, brilliant. I remember John Phillips was getting me a little prepared for some of this. 
and we had gone up. They had rented a, uh, a Learjet to take us up there from Los Angeles. This is the first time I ever saw Monterey, where they were going to, which was actually some kind of a, uh, an animal fair grounds. I mean, it, it was not really meant for large groups of people to sit and watch musicians. And uh, we went up in a Learjet, and Cass went along with us. And somebody, it, it might have been Denny, but it might have been me, said, can you do an outside loop? And the guy said, sure. And an outside loop is what they take the plane, and they go like this, and for an instant, everybody is weightless. And I wish I had taken a film of Mama Cass weightless floating around that cabin. This huge blimp was over our... Just, it was fantastic. It was, and she got giggling. It was just an amazing thing. So by the time I got there, I was really ready to, to roll. I loved all the people. I loved John. I loved Michelle. They were terrific people. Well, so, we'll have to leave with visions of Mama okay. Cass. I'm getting a sense that our time has come to a close. Well, yes, indeed. thank you for being so... So, attended. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.